Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Radio Free Acton, the official podcast of the Acton Institute dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm your host, Caroline Roberts. And on today's episode, I'll first be speaking with Michal Miemtu, a Romanian conservative author who recently wrote an article for Acton's blog titled The Trump-Putin Summit, A Missed Opportunity for Liberty. We discuss the events surrounding the recent summit, including Russia's current economic climate and ways in which Trump should have prioritized conversation on liberty with Putin. Then on Upstream, host Bruce Edward Walker sits down with Peter Mylander, a professor of political science at Houghton College, to discuss literary criticism and how to best read a book a topic Peter also covered in his lecture this past June at our annual conference, Acton University. If you're interested in checking out any resources referenced in today's episode, you can check out our show notes published each Wednesday at blog.acton.org. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing you to Michal Niemtu, an Eastern European conservative, author, and public intellectual. He has written 10 books on American politics, Christianity, and Islam, as well as new trends in Marxist culture. Michal, thank you very much for joining me on Radio Free Acton today. Well, thank you. I'm very excited to talk to your listeners. I want to talk with you about the recent Trump-Putin summit. Trump has received a lot of criticism of late for the summit and his remarks following the meeting. And a lot of people are saying he, quote, caved spectacularly by basically throwing the American intelligence agency under the bus. And after doing so, attempting to retract his words. You've also written about your reaction to the summit in a new article for Acton's online Religion and Liberty Transatlantic publication, calling the summit a missed opportunity for liberty. How was this a missed opportunity? First of all, I'd like to say that I speak from a distinctly Eastern European perspective, and I don't grasp necessarily the, all the inner debates that are happening right now in America. But from an Eastern European perspective, I have to say that we are now facing a paradox. Why? Because initially, uh, the position taken by the American Republican administration in Brussels, so before Helsinki, was a very staunch anti-Russian position. So if you read the summit declaration put together by the heads of the 29 member states, member nations of the North Atlantic Alliance, you'd be surprised, if not shocked, to, to read the tone, the very severe tone used by NATO against Russia. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is one of the most sort of critical documents ever issued by NATO since 1989 uh, against Russian aggression. For instance, and this is of course with the help of, of President Trump, for instance, they critique the illegitimate, 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 excuse me, the illegitimate annexation of Crimea, the destabilization of Eastern Ukraine, the repeated violation of the NATO uh, airspace and so on and so forth. But then two days down the road, after a visit, short visit to Scotland, and a bit of golfing, you see Mr. Trump uh, unable to maintain this very solid position. Why did he feel the need to please Mr. Mr. Putin? Why did he feel that it is proper and right to critique uh, the FBI while you are talking to a former KGB agent? This is something that totally escapes me, but this was a big mistake in terms of communication. 
And Trump almost seems more concerned with attempting to defuse suspicions of Russian collusion than a conversation on improved economic prosperity. Um, why do you think Trump glossed over the economic problem in Russia? Why do you think that he gave almost credit to Russia? Probably because it's not a top priority for America to be uh, in a conflict with Russia. Probably because uh, a top priority for Mr. Trump is uh, North Korea and China. So if you want to think think everything from a global perspective, uh, I don't think Mr. Trump wants to have an, you know, an, an, an unnecessary conflict with a nuclear power. Mm -hmm. uh, he has uh, made enough enemies in the Middle East with his move against Tehran and Iran, and I welcome that. He has made lots of enemies in Europe by moving U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, and I welcome that. But obviously he wants to, to make peace with, with Vladimir Putin uh, because of common interests in Syria and in combating terrorism. But now, that doesn't mean that he should have forgotten about the millions of Georgians, Moldovans, Ukrainians, and even Russians who are still hoping that freedom, political freedom, would bring about economic prosperity. Mm -hmm. And we have to remember the fact that we are 30 years down uh, the road when it comes to you know, remembering the collapse of communism. And for many, many Russians, the hopes that they had in 1989, 1991, have not come to fruition. So my, my only disappointment with Mr. Trump is that he has completely forgotten the kind of rhetoric that Mr. Ronald Reagan would put forward when he would talk to the Eastern Europeans. Um, uh, there's something which, 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 which probably he did not study properly. The, the, the very, very smart, natural combination between humor on the one hand and, I would say, strong position on the other hand. Mr. Reagan, President Reagan, was able to both uh, please Gorbachev, but also to leave the table if that was necessary in Reykjavik in 1987, for instance. And that, and that, and that is something that perhaps uh, Mr. Trump is still beginning to learn, how mm -hmm. to combine the two. Yeah, you write in your piece that nearly 30 years after the collapse of the Berlin Wall, Donald Trump could have said that freedom is still a bright prospect for all the nations of the world, and that freedom is not real unless it can be measured in tangible, political, economic, and religious terms. When it comes to all these very specific measurements, Russia has a dubious record, you say. So can you give us a clearer picture of Russia's present status of religion, of uh, religious and economic freedom? Well, to my knowledge, uh, and my knowledge m might be limited, but to my knowledge uh, today as we speak, it's quite impossible to mobilize any political resistance against Vladimir Putin's regime. Think of the situation of Alex Navalny, who is an Orthodox Christian, Orthodox Russian patriarch. He's not necessarily a leftist, but who was sent to jail, uh, put into confinement, only because he declared his intention to run for office for the office of mayor of uh, Moscow. So in terms of you know, political freedom, we are very, very far away from what Russia was, uh, was able to provide even in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. I would say that uh, under President Yeltsin, Russia was a freer country than today from, from, from a political standpoint. Wow. When it comes to religious freedom, I know that some Christian evangelical groups uh, were prevented from evangelizing 
in, in Russia, and I speak as an Eastern Orthodox myself, I believe competition is good even in religious terms. And of course, Russia doesn't want that to happen. And, 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 and finally, the economic freedom, which, which matters so much, is, is I would say, is um, being uh, limited by the rampant corruption of the Russian administration. Currently, uh, on a yearly basis, a typical Russian would make something like $8,000, I said $8,000, that's the GDP per capita, which, which, which tells you that basically a, a Russian today has to survive with barely $700 per month. That's mm-hmm. not success, right? That's not really prosperity. That's not a flourishing economy. So what I was missing from Mr. Trump was this, this plea for a direct connection between political freedom and economic freedom. He could, even, he could have even made the case that, for instance, he is under constant attack in his own country, but he likes that because freedom provides a, a forum for a political debate, but also for economic competition. And he did not say that at all. So that was a missed opportunity, really. Mm-hmm. So as my last question... You conclude in your piece that as the son of a poor Scottish lady who came to New York in the early 1930s, Donald Trump, as you just said, could use his platform to explain the relationship between economic freedom and prosperity. So my question is, considering everything that we just talked about, if you had been in Trump's shoes, what would you have told Putin? I have told Mr. Putin that uh, I recognize the sovereignty of Russia and I, of course, admire the wonderful things that the Russian culture has given the world from music, painting, arts, and you know, mathematical geniuses on the one hand, but also I'll tell him that uh, I, come to, I come to Helsinki in order to uh, endorse the American support for the NATO allies uh, who have seen repeatedly the aggressive behavior of Russia in Ukraine, in Georgia and in Moldova. So I would probably uh, try to say two things at the same time in, in a polite way, which would not offend personally Mr. Putin, but which would comfort the Eastern European allies when it comes to the future uh, prospects of, a, of an American and European uh, alliance. The other thing I would, I would, I would say, maybe not, not necessarily directly to Putin, but I would, I would probably have considered talking more uh, bluntly to the European partners about the situation. Because you have to remember, today in Europe, we are lacking a strong leadership when it comes to Russia. It's not at all clear that the German leadership, Angela Merkel in particular, or the former Chancellor Gerhard Schröder, are able to stand up against Assad like Putin. Mm -hmm. It's not at all clear that today in Europe, you have uh, an Italian leadership which would be able to stand up against Putin. And by the way, Atkin has published recently a very nice piece on uh, Italian populism being closer and closer to Putinism. So in, 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 in that respect, I would have done my best in order to tell the European leaders that America will always be on, on, on the European side uh, when it comes to confronting Russian aggression. And, and, and that was yet another missed opportunity. I thought, honestly, that Mr. Trump was rude to Theresa May in a, in a way which was unnecessary and was, of course, a very aggressive when it comes to Angela Merkel. And he had a point talking about the, the, the North Stream uh, pipeline, but he was too soft when he encountered 
face-to-face the alpha male of Russian politics, Vladimir Putin. Mm-hmm. So that was a missed opportunity. Now, what can America do? Probably, uh, I expect, uh, the Vice President Mike Pence is not uh, the State Department leader, Mike Pompeo, to, to visit Eastern Europe and, 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 make, and make it clear that America will always, always stand by its allies. Well, thank you very much, Michal, for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you, Caroline. Thank you. As one of only two presidents to have never formally joined a church, people have wondered just how much Abraham Lincoln himself was under God when he said that the United States should consider itself as such as it strove for a new birth of freedom. However, the Civil War shifted the ground decisively under Lincoln's feet. In the cauldron of war, he discovered that God was not merely a remote force or a faceless universal power, but a personal, intelligent, and willing God who intervened in the affairs of men to direct them in ways that they could not even begin to imagine. Join us on August 9 in Grand Rapids to hear Alan Gelzo, the Henry R. Luce Professor of the Civil War Era at Gettysburg College, on Abraham Lincoln's moral constitution. You can register for this event at acton.org slash events. Hello and welcome to Upstream. I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker, and this week we're going to be talking with Peter Mylander, who is a political science and general humanities and the honors program professor at Houghton College in Western New York. And he is also a speaker at this week's Acton University, this year's Acton University. And we're going to discuss a little bit about his topic, which is the moral imagination on the importance of literature for politics. But we're going to veer from the script just a little bit so that we can uh, talk about other uh, aspects of the moral imagination that he will not touch upon in his presentation later on today. So good morning, Peter. It's a pleasure to have you here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, Reading your literature, I had assumed you to be a little bit more... um, Shall we say elegant with a with a with a pipe and uh, leather patches on on your elbows? But uh, uh, you seem to be actually uh, far more approachable. So I'm I'm grateful for that. Well, I'm glad. Born and bred in the Midwest, so that probably accounts for some of it. Well, we're we're the best type of guys, aren't we? That's right. So listen, um, we're talking about the moral imagination, and uh, you're that that's the first part of your uh, presentation later on today uh, on the importance of literature for politics. And we don't normally talk about politics uh, per se in the upstream podcast, but tell me exactly what you mean by the moral imagination. I I know it's not a a phrase that you coined, but uh, Edmund Burke. So uh, enlighten us. Well, you're right. The, The moral imagination is a phrase from Edmund Burke. It's from his reflections on the revolution in France. I, I hit upon that phrase as a way to try to describe the process by which I think literature helps to shape or form our souls. Uh, I wanted to think about how literature affects human beings and therefore has you know, carryover effects on our political and social life. And Burke has this this very nice passage talking about what he calls the all the decent drapery of our lives, which he claims has been torn away, stripped away by the French revolutionaries and their sort of emphasis on pure unalloyed reason or or rationality in a kind of reductive, materialist sense. And Burke wants to argue that actually human nature involves much more than that, that the reason has to be informed by the emotions, by the sentiments, uh, by our imagination, and so that human beings 
when we think about ourselves, on the one hand, we, we could think of ourselves as just sort of animals, um, naked, uh, fat, ugly, wrinkled, balding, all, all of the, the things that we know are true about ourselves, sick. And Burke says that's not the truth about us, but the imagination has to help us kind of expand on that and see more about human beings. So it's more or less a, a rebuke of Rousseau. I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, Rousseau, of course, Rousseau certainly exercises a great deal of imagination in his own attempt to to think his way back into what humans would have been like. Um, but certainly his effort to strip away, in, in, the, in the second discourse in particular, Rousseau asks, what would humans have been like before there was any society, his version of a state of nature? And to do that, he says we have to strip away all the all the different layers of convention that have built up over the ages, almost like peeling the layers of an onion back. And we're left, of course, with a kind of what one of my undergraduate professors used to describe as a big, happy St. Bernard dog running around in the forest, kind of panting and eating and drinking and sleeping. And Burke says, no, that, that's really not humanity. That's not human nature. Human nature is, it, it's, it's human nature. It's natural for us to be conventional, to live in society, and to build up all sorts of institutions for ourselves. Well, when, when I think of literature, I, I think of there, there, there's two types. There's uh, literature as ice cream, which is entertainment, uh, popcorn if you will. And then there's literature as culture that you can read into it many different things, some that the uh, artist has intended and others that, that have not. And uh, I, I came of age in an era prior to all of the, the deconstructionist theory that you come across in, in universities today and the queer theory and feminist theory and, and what have you. And I, I'm not uh, maligning them much, <laughs> but uh, you know, Marxist theory is is, is another. But uh, more recently, uh, I, I think the the libertarian conservative element, free market element, has been a little bit more vocal about reading literature and uncovering that which expresses in a allegorical fashion those principles that we are are following or that we are promoting. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And you talk about all these different critical approaches to literature, and um, you know, I wouldn't want to deny that they could, in some contexts, have their uses. I'd be a little more skeptical of some of the versions you named than of others. Uh, there is a sense in which we're always entitled to, to go back and look at cultural artifacts from the past and ask, what can we do with them now? But, but insofar as we want to understand the work's as they're produced, as the book was written, in terms of the author's intention, uh, understand what the author really has to say to us, we have to think our way into the book itself and not bring some preconceived ideological framework to it. Um, in terms of, say, conservative free marketers coming to literature looking for ideas as well, I think it's important to remember that when we approach a book, the what we're looking for is not to just find what we already think, whatever that might be, whatever perspective we're coming from. We're looking to expand our horizons and to learn something new. And so it's not a matter of just having our own preconceptions confirmed or just figuring out that, oh, yes, what we always thought was right, hopefully will be challenged in some ways. And I think that all great literature, insofar as it really is, has literary merit, as it's, as it's great, captures some element of truth. And so trying to find out what that is and how that can expand our own ideas is, is what I do, at least when I approach literature. Well, I write a lot of literary criticism and myself, and it is kind of difficult at, at times to separate my preconceived notions uh, or the, the baggage that I, I bring to literature. And uh, in, in your talk at Acton University, you bring up 
Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Um, briefly, just talk what the book is about and, and your, your difficulties in approaching it, but uh, also how you found it ultimately rewarding in discussing with uh, your honors program at Houghton College. So McCarthy's The Road is a book that uh, I had not ever read previously when I encountered it in the context of that program. It was recommended to me by a colleague. We were looking specifically for a contemporary novel that our students could pair with quite lengthy excerpts they were reading from Hobbes' Leviathan. Uh, and it turned out the book worked very well for that purpose. Uh, McCarthy's The Road describes a kind of post-apocalyptic apocalyptic landscape. There's been a, a nuclear holocaust, apparently, and there's a, a sick and, in fact, a, a dying father with his son. The, they're trying to reach the coast looking for some form of sustenance or civilization or, or hospital environment or something like that. And so we, we follow them as they go on this journey through a, a really destroyed landscape, occasionally encountering other human beings, uh, not very often. And it's, it's a very, um, it's a disturbing book. It's a book that I, I almost felt sort of a little dirty after I'd read because of the, the really gruesome descriptions in certain points of human violence and brutality. In particular, there's a scene where this father and son come upon a, I guess what you'd call a guerrilla warfare type gang that has bonded together and is sort of marching through the countryside. And they're taking, whenever they find somebody, they take them prisoner. And the father and son then happen upon uh, a building and they enter it looking for food, go down into a cellar. And it turns out that when this band captures people, what they do is they chain them up down there and then they eat them gradually. So they're engaged in cannibalism. It's a very sort of and a, a yucky description. Uh, and and so reading that, I I didn't, at first, I wasn't even sure whether I wanted to read it with my students. I just felt a little uncomfortable about it. Um, I teach at a, a, Houghton is a small Christian college, and students come from a fairly traditional background, and I think it'd probably be a little disturbing for them as it was for me, and I think would be for most readers. But you know, McCarthy is, is grappling with very serious problems there. Uh, he is asking us what human life would be like, how humans would treat each other in a world where there was no security and no defense and no protection. He shows us the father's love for his son and the sacrifice for his son. So there's a lot of things that we, we see in there that prompt us to think about important and enduring questions, in spite of the fact that you know, McCarthy is also showing us some of the ugly side of human life. Nasty, brutish, and short. Exactly. Words. That's how it is. Right. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm going to read you a little quote here that uh, it was written by one of my, my favorite writers, uh, they, they make me say this, Peter, uh, that would be uh, Reverend Robert Sirico. And uh, in, in a, a piece he wrote on the Italian novelist Alessandro Manzoni, he, he begins by saying the parsing of literature to support any given political, economic, and social agendas is not an uncommon practice, but one which nevertheless must be done with great care. Viewing high culture through a reductive, critical, and ideological prism often that's prism, often risks diminishing the contribution literature makes to culture by viewing the entirety of an artist's work through the wrong end of a telescope. In this postmodern era rife with deconstruction, it becomes all too easy to concoct an argument that even the most banal elements of our culture deserve consideration at the hands of those with a critical axe to grind. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to that? Yeah, um, I think Part of that goes back to something we were talking about just a few moments ago, the notion that we should not come to literature just with this preconceived ideological framework and try to kind of cram everything we read into our preconceptions and be sure that everything we read somehow reconfirms a particular line we're trying to take. So I think part of what uh, uh, what Father Sirico is saying there is also along those lines. Um, the, the passage also speaks to a desire to sort of 
find every element of the culture out there, however banal it said, uh, and and then find again the significance that we're looking for and hoping for. Um, I don't have any particular objection to, to looking to scholars who want to study some of the more perhaps banal elements of the culture. It's not really what I do. Uh, I think they're less rewarding than some of the more high culture aspects, but they, they sometimes may tell us things. Well, perhaps not as a reader, but as a critic, uh, it's it, it's nice to provide future readers or potential readers a, a touchstone to say, hey, you might want to read George Bernard Shaw. Uh, you, you understand that Shaw is a, a socialist. And, you know, especially if you were to read uh, St. Barbara. One of the things that uh, has turned people off of reading Shaw simply because, well, I don't want to read him because he's a commie. But the fact of the matter is he's a darn good writer and he is quite adept at, at dialogue. And not not everything uh, associated with Shaw is necessarily political or leftist or progressive. That's right. And and. Even in terms of the elements that are leftist and progressive, I mean, Shaw may be a socialist, but look, socialism, communism has appealed to large numbers of people over the years. There must be a reason for that. Reading Shaw may help us understand something about that. Uh, and so we need to be able to read all sorts of, of literature and, again, see what we can take from it and what elements of the human condition it seems to illuminate in one fashion or another. Well, I'll draw the line at H.G. Wells. <laughs> oh, no, I remember reading when I was much younger, War of the Worlds and Time Machine, Invisible Man, all these, and enjoying them quite a bit. Uh, that doesn't get into some of his less palatable uh, historical, political views, but um, the science fiction is enjoyable. Before we conclude, I guess I, I would ask you to kind of give us a wrap-up. Why read literature in accordance to political philosophy? So... When I do this in my classes, the way I approach this is that, so of course, I, we, we read Plato and we read Aristotle and we read Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau, and all of these thinkers are trying to tell us truths about the human condition, trying to help us understand ideas like justice and equality and liberty and legitimate authority and, and so forth. And I think that literary artists are often discussing exactly the same problems. They just don't lay out their ideas in a sort of step-by-step treatise-style fashion. We have to think about the stories that they tell, and I find it particularly helpful that in a literary context, what we see are these ideas concretized or incarnated. That is, they are put into the context of specific characters, specific lives, specific historical settings, and so we think about them not simply in the abstract, but we ask ourselves, okay, what, is it, what does it look like to be a, a farmer in the Austrian Alps in the late 19th century as it industrializes? And and if we understand that, what can that tell us about uh, ideas like liberty and equality in that context? And so I, I find the use of stories in this way a very helpful mechanism for prompting, prompting myself, but also prompting my students to think about ideas that can sometimes seem more abstract to them if they're just reading a philosophical treatise. Terrific. Thank you so much, Peter Mylander. Thank you for having me. Peter Mylander is a political science and general humanities in the honors program professor at Houghton College in Western New York. He has spoken this year at Acton University on the moral imagination, on the importance of literature for politics. It's a wonderful presentation, uh, and when it is posted on the Acton website, I do hope you check it out. He's a fascinating speaker and a wonderful scholar, and I uh, hope to talk to you again soon. I'd love to do that. Thank you. 
Great. And for this week's episode of Upstream, I'd like to thank my producer, the wonderful Caroline Roberts, and I am your host, Bruce Edward Walker. And with that, we've come to the end of another episode. Thank you so much for listening today. We want to hear from you. What are you liking on our podcast and what would you like to hear more of? You can leave us a message at 888-705-4180 or you can email us at rfa at acton.org. Lastly, if you like what you hear on Radio Free Acton, don't forget to give us a rating on iTunes. This episode was produced by Caroline Roberts and edited by Nathan Moore. 